This is Decentralized, the Decentralized Trials and Research Podcast. We gather here with friends and guests to talk about the latest ways to make research and clinical trials around the world more inclusive, more accessible, more resilient, and more sustainable, all by using decentralized methods. This podcast is recorded live on Clubhouse every Friday, 12 to 1 Eastern, on the TGIF DCT show at the Decentralized Trials Club. You can join the live sessions and add your voice every Friday at noon Eastern time with the free Clubhouse app by following the Decentralized Trials Club. And of course, subscribe to this podcast on your favorite platform to get notified of new episodes. Following the club and subscribing will also help you stay current for any of the bonus content we may drop. And now it's time to decentralize. For those of you just joining, welcome. We'll get ourselves started here in just a minute. And we have our first co-host today, Marianne Resk. Hello. Hello, hello. Good afternoon. Happy Friday. Happy Friday, indeed. And it's nice to to see a nice weather Friday here in the Northeast. Yesterday, this time felt pretty uh, pretty miserable. This is a nice setup for the weekend. It is. I always have to say that before Amir gets here because he'll always do the old, well, in Southern California, <laughs> it's always a bit of paradise. And here is Ro. Hello, Rohit. If uh, you're looking forward to there it is. You're on mute there on the lower right. Hello. Hey, Greg. How are you? Hey, Marianne. Great. Hello. Welcome. Likewise. And um, for those that are new to Clubhouse, just a couple of uh, quick housekeeping notes before we get started. You will, f- if you do join us here on the stage, you will find the um, mute button in the lower right on your screen. Uh, we'll just keep you on mute when you're not speaking and ask you uh, to use your mute button to signal to us if you'd like to jump in, uh, you know, next in the conversation. Flashing your mute button slowly is, is a great clue to us that you'd like to speak next. But if you can keep on mute, otherwise it'll minimize our background noise here. Pro- always the best etiquette, which I'm miserable at on Clubhouse, is to... State your name whenever you're about to speak. Uh, That's meant to be a nice aid for those who may be visually impaired and may otherwise struggle to follow the little fonts and icons uh, on the Clubhouse app. Um, Another couple of quick housekeeping notes before we get started. Uh, If you are not already in the top left, you can tap Decentralized Trials and you could follow the Decentralized Trials Club and join a few thousand of your closest friends. Um, At that page is where you will find the replays for all of our past conversations dating back to December on a host of fabulous topics with great people joining. And you will see what's coming up in the weeks ahead. Uh, Next Friday, as an example, we will be leaning in on um, the balance of uh, traditional sites versus um, fully uh, centralized or meta sites. Uh, Do they conflict? Do they compete? Do they collaborate? On April 8th, we will talk about patient support in decentralized trials and how can we offer a truly holistic and comprehensive view around support that can straddle all of the different needs of a research participant who may not be coming into the clinic as much or at all. Uh, April 15th, We're going to kick in regarding uh, wearables and connected devices in Decentralized. April 22nd, we're going to focus on uh, demystifying Decentralized cancer trials and focus our time then on some of the latest what's happening in oncology. Uh, April 29th, talking about lab specimen logistics. So the next few weeks look great. But remember, if you have a topic that you'd like to see us cover, just let us know. Drop a line to Amir or myself. Let us know if there's a topic that you'd like to uh, co-host or just make sure that is getting included in the cycle. But I'm really excited about this week. And before we jump in, I'd like to say hello to Amir. Good afternoon. Good morning. 
Hi, everyone. Thank you, Craig. I really do want to acknowledge everyone who's volunteered to co-host with us. You just rattled off a whole list of things and also acknowledge how much work it takes to put these together. So I'm really glad we're able to do this and uh, have a conversation. I'm very excited to talk to Marianne and Rohit. I'm sure they're going to be fun co-hosts for us today. Absolutely. Absolutely. And by the way, uh, putting the, this calendar together is great because of this audience. We have such a great community here. Um, You'll watch uh, the numbers on the on the top left of the screen. Will typically over the course of this hour, over a hundred people will have joined us, and it's your feedback and the sessions and topics important to you that are making this uh, really fun and easy to keep uh, going. So I, I appreciate all of your ideas and suggestions, including our friend Rohit, who helped to suggest this week's topic. So why don't we jump right in? Uh, this week on TGFDCT, we're focusing on the, the range of different data strategies, data sources, locations people are looking to include in decentralized research. How do we maintain quality and what is the role of data and analytics to help us keep the C in a clinical trial and, a, and an RCT from, from becoming chaos? Uh, so, Ro had helped to set up this topic. Ro, would you like to come off mute? Introduce yourself for the audience. Happy to, Greg. Hi, everybody. Rohit Nabishan, CEO, co-founder of Locavant. Locavant is a clinical trial data analytics company. Um, so, we've been around for the last uh, two and a half years, maybe three years. A strange time to create a startup in within the pandemic. Uh, let's say we were a few months, we, create, we were created a few months before the pandemic, but most of our lifestyle has been, lifespan has been within the pandemic and really have been facing a lot of the challenges that have accelerated and exacerbated during this time in terms of data capture, in terms of keeping trials running, obviously in keep of, in, in, in also in, in terms of actually accelerating therapeutics and vaccines, et cetera, during this time. I think there's been a lot of interesting changes that have happened over the last two years that require new ways of thinking about how do we engage more, a more a greater diversity of participants in trials, as well as how do we continue to allow choice in selection of novel data sources to develop um, a number of specialized therapeutics, which is kind of the trend of the industry as a whole. And that requires a new way of, of managing data, that requires a new way of managing uh, study teams. And I'm really excited to discuss that with everybody here today. Yeah. And, 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 and uh, I just oh, to add to that. Jump right in, introduce yourself, share, share why you are interested in today's topic. Yeah, and I, I, I couldn't agree more. So uh, Marian Risk, I'm the Chief Strategy Officer here at Medible. And um, I couldn't agree more with Rohit. I mean, if you think about um, how connected data will power that next generation of patient centricity. And uh, I don't know if uh, for those of you that um, might have young kids at home, mine are so into the um, the uh, Roblox and this whole metaverse that we're in where, quite frankly, every one of us has had um, digital and data being part of our everyday lives in our lifestyle. And clinical research um, should should also be leveraging aspects of this. And I think as consumers of data and digital, we have an expectation of how that can improve our lifestyle and also clinical research. Um, and if, if you even think about it, until recently, the only way patients could gain access to clinical trials to uh, potentially uh, access these life-saving therapy was to go in person in a clinic. And we recognize pre-pandemic, you know, um, you know, traveling 25 miles to a site is uh, certainly one of those factors that was the barrier. And now as we're using DCT as the standard, um, connecting trial data to real world data now becomes the standard practice of care. And um, this is what really gets me super excited around uh, recognizing how we now are creating a more uh, neutral, ubiquitous solution for health data connectivity. And uh, we could talk about some of those examples today but just connecting real world data as an example is really the future that we believe that can drive patient centricity and some of the myriad of, of, of benefits uh, in terms of long-term follow-up as well as um, uh, connect, uh, a connected uh, care option for, for patients. You know, when we, um, when we see these uh, conversations, Samir, around decentralized trials today, it feels like 
there's a lot of enthusiasm and attention around um, flexibility and choice of location, enabling participants and research, if possible, to be able to choose whether a certain visit might be in the clinic or from home. And at the same time, we have uh, interest in to capture data in more and more diverse ways than ever before, whether it's connected devices, real world data, as Marianne is mentioning, along with self-reporting and diagnostics. Um, that feels to me like a lot of the chaos for the setup here today. Amir, are there other signals of chaos that you're seeing around where decentralized could lead people's minds? You know, it's funny you should bring that up because I was going to actually sort of um, say, ask well, a very provocative title, Chaos to Quality. So what is it exactly we're calling chaos, right? So, so <laughs> I, I can certainly talk about it, but let me ask Marianne Rohit that, like, where, what do you guys, you know, what, what do you see as what, I know it's a tongue-in-cheek title, but what do we see as a possible inverted commas chaos? And uh, we could certainly ask you, uh, everyone else in the room as well later on about this, but what, what, what do we mean by chaos? I'd love to hear for, uh, people's opinion first. Sure. Um, maybe I can take a crack at this. I'm happy to hear Marianne's perspective as well. Um, I think one thing we noted, and this is a trend that I think predates the really emergence of DCT as a standard in the last few years, to Marianne's point just a few minutes ago. But we've seen this movement to specialize in therapeutics when you are developing across the industry. And this is not true of only the long-tail biotech. This is also true of the mid and the large pharma companies as well. And when you're in a situation like that, when you're developing for these specialized niche therapeutics, you have to pick the right data sources to fit that particular trial and to fit that particular patient population, et cetera. And so with the, with the I guess, the proliferation of disparate niche indications under development, we are seeing a prolifer proliferation of multiple data types. And as a data and analytics group and company that's focused in kind of clinical research across the board right now, we're seeing challenges across our customer base, across our partner base of being able to make sense of data. Obviously, there are hubs that already exist for certain data types, but when you bring in novel data types, when you're bringing in different, very specific types of information to determine this efficacy and safety of, you, of these therapies under development, there's a lot of work, and oftentimes that work ends up being manual and service-based, to bring that data in, often it's siloed outside of the general hub of data. And now you don't really know what is the actual single source. You, you don't actually understand what the single source of truth is. And when you're in that situation, you want to be able to make comparative, uh, comparative analysis across some of these novel data sources. Let's say DCT, for example, you want to be able to understand certain direct from data captured type endpoint information in correspondence or in comparison to some of the hybrid, maybe let's say site-based information that's being captured. If they're captured and standardized in two different hubs or two different areas, it's very hard, number one, to put them, kind of juxtapose them against each other, number one. And number two, it also makes it really hard downstream to do a kind of integrated analysis. So that's the type of chaos I think of when I'm thinking of chaos to quality. The idea of you want to enable choice both for participants, but also for the folks that are developing these novel therapeutics to meet, un, un, to met, to meet unmet clinical needs in the space, right, in the industry. But you also, you wanna move away from the situation is if I actually decide to use this data source or that data source, that's gonna be perfect for my trial, that it's not gonna create so much overhead for my um, maybe under-resourced team or, or constrained team to be able to make sure what is going on in my trying at any point in time? Or is this really an issue that we're seeing with recruitment? Because I don't actually have all the information. These sources are not integrated in a way that informs me adequately. Marianne, your thoughts on, uh, on chaos here, uh, building on Rose's perspective. Yeah, I think we're also um, redefining data quality in an evolving landscape. So Rohit really hit on a lot of phenomenal points um, just the uh, proliferation of data sources uh, creates um, a, um, I think it's like a healthy challenge, quite frankly, on how to ensure uh, you're collecting that data from source and what are the interoperability required across systems. Um, leveraging that single source of truth is really um, foundationally um, why 
choosing a SaaS platform is so significant as creating that interoperability. The other thing I will say that's incredibly important where you're turning that chaos into quality is what what is the what is a problem that we're looking to solve? Um, when we think about data capture and when we're looking at things like um, ePro uh, or ECOA, uh, we're able to use ePro as a primary endpoint um, where the patient is reporting, and that's quite frankly very important about quality of life. So when we think about the data from um, that's being captured from, let's say uh, ePro or ECOA, that information is going to help us. You know, may improve survival rate, but it also may improve quality of life outcomes. So now with some of the new regulatory updates and changes that leveraging real world data as an example, we wanna show that the drugs are something beneficial to suggest and inform how patients are doing beyond the clinical study. And so now we have the ability in clinical research to go beyond, let's say the walls of phase one, two, three, and four, and really do a long-term follow-up of understanding how do we move away from maybe the traditional ways of capturing data, of course, ensuring interoperability, but very much in, in, in ensuring confidence that we can actually personalize the care of clinical research. Um, what really gets me fired up and excited about this topic is that, you know, when I think about long-term follow-up after a patient has, let's say, completed a study, how do we continue to follow them through when they go out to the quote unquote real world? Having a platform that allows them to engage and stay engaged periodically, um, is important where we're able to um, have a more holistic view of the patient. So when we think about number one, um, you know, we're moving into this metaverse, as I called it, we're moving into another world. We're starting to think about tech as an integrated enabler, again, in any facet of our life. Um, now we're thinking about digital therapeutics and other areas of technology to, quite frankly, creates an easier way to capture the data. Um, but we also want to understand how are we leveraging that proliferation of data to solve different problems or create new value that we can um, establish. Another uh, example is companion diagnostics, right? L looking at that data, but let's say whether it's sensor data to show how we can use that as a part of either data for labeling or um, understand how we can um, go, uh, go and determine and identify risks before it happens. So. Um, this is where we can turn that clarity on uh, creating that data map and profile. Um, and it's just such an exciting time, isn't it, Rohit, where we have um, technologies that can um, help create um, impact. But I think, really, what do you think about in terms of the visualization, like really understanding how you can look at that information to um, provide that insight to the right stakeholders, as I believe now we're, we're in a, a, a moment of not only capturing that data for the sake of that clinical study, but even in terms of long-term follow-up, love to hear your perspective on that. Yeah, I think uh, you, you nailed it on, on two points that I, I'd like to um, address as well, which is I think to Amir's question as well on chaos, there is the, the idea that now you have data coming in on much faster cycles, much faster frequency. And if data is coming like from sensors or other types of capture direct patients, and in those cases, now you can't just wait for uh, two months down the line to look at that data source and understand, or even wait until an interim analysis, et cetera. You have potentially streaming data sources coming in. You need to be more proactive and analyzing that data source in a ways that our industry hasn't done in the past, right? I think that's, that could, and if it's not managed correctly, there's a lot of chaos specifically there. Um, but I think that is a key component oriented to actually making sense and enabling that choice, choosing these different types of collection, data collection methods, but also managing them appropriately through leveraging data. I think you also mentioned, Marianne, something about sources. And I think one of the things that I find interesting also in our experience, at least at Locavent for the last two, three years, is that source means many different things to many people. Right. Um, so we typically have talked about sources as, you know, the actual data source, the EDC or the CTMS or the IRT, et cetera. I could go on saying acronyms for probably the next 20 minutes. Um, that being said, when we are working with in the reality of the situation, we're working with partners now, we see that 
they there's a varying landscape of technology technology maturity in the market right now, right? So some people say, okay, go go get it from our source, our actual source data systems. Some folks are saying, well, we've also done some work to aggregate the data into our lake. Can you just pick it up from there? Because frankly, it's a lot of overhead for me to actually connect you directly with those source and all those vendors. And and some are some are in the warehouses, some are in the streams, some are in the data lakes, some are in the uh, um, even the other end of the spectrum, like basically just CSV dumps. And frankly, that creates a level of chaos as well in terms of being able to aggregate that information reliably to be able to be more proactive in your studies, especially when you're comparing traditional site-based data capture that sometimes, you know, you know, you don't have to really look at that until sometimes, well, typically it's looked at retrospectively. Whereas when you have the streaming data, Problem devices and sensors, etc. You need to actually be more, more up to date, more current, more proactive with that that type of data analysis. Okay, I'm feeling the chaos now. Um, <laughs> just just even the acronyms you went through, but thinking about the various sources of truth, all the sources of insights we want here, the uh, the questions you set up, with ranging from from recruitment to data quality and integrity across all these different sources. Let's talk about what role analytics could or should be playing here. Um, Ro, what have you got going on in this space? What are you seeing that is starting to suggest some, some answers and solutions? Uh, Ro, there you go. Okay, sorry, just coming off mute there. So um, I think I think a lot of folks think about analytics in and of itself, right? Just like a solution, a, a wide, it's a wide field of basically bringing kind of more methodological analysis or methodological um, a, interpretation of information, right? Data and information. And it's really about what you apply that to. Um, what we've been doing at Locavet, what I've seen in the market now is, you know, a lot of it starts really with the data integration. It starts with actually connecting to the right data sources, because if you're not actually getting the right information in, right, obviously garbage in, garbage out, no matter what sophisticated machine learning, what sophisticated neural nets, et cetera, you put on top, you're not going to get the, the information you, you want to be seeing on the other end, or it's not going to be reliable or high integrity information or, or, in, or analysis. So what we've been doing on the analytics side, one thing is we've said, all right, let's focus this on particular domains of data. For example, we've amassed uh, you know, 2000 studies worth of operationally oriented data, right? Um, this is primarily a convergence of EDC, CTMS and IRT data, but uh, heavy on the CTMS components. And what we can do with that information is we can start building models uh, of what we expect performance to look like for a study of a particular type. So what we what we say is that this is like a lookalike model. We borrow from the ad tech um, space where you have lookalike audiences. We say, okay, what study are we going to be deploying on? What studies in our repository of concurrent and historical data? Let's match that against the feature set and say that these are a pool of lookalike studies. And then in that scenario, we can actually start to forecast certain things like what what is a protocol deviation in this stage for this type of study of this type mean in terms of risk for the study right for example what is the enrollment uh forecast look like for studies of this type and so i think it's really in my mind the analytics side is here is about bringing contextually relevant information to studies in a manner that brings leading information that you can anticipate issues ahead. You can, so you can you get that jump start on anticipating issues. And it's not just predicting things for predicting sake, it's actually being explanatory. It's saying that we expect the risk to our timeline to go up by X percent because we're seeing these three types of sites, these, these sites in, in your study um, have a major slowdown and where we've seen these types of sites in the past and, and studies like this have a slowdown, this is the effect, right? So it's drawn both from the historical experience and concurrent data that, we, that we've aggregated, but then it's also taking information specific from that study that we're deploying on. And I think that is that piece of the, the analytics of the taking historical data 
as the analysis of historical data and ongoing data is critical. Because when I've gone in and talked to partners about, you know, we have this historical data asset, we leverage it for analytics, often the statement I get back is, well, you know, my study is unique, right? We're, I said this before, we're working in specialized niche therapeutic indications across the board. So there's not going to be that much data, historical data, that's very similar to my study, right? So that's where I think the, the power of actually creating that real-time connectivity with data sources on the ongoing study, we pull that in and we weight the information, weight the, let's say, the, the, the contributions of each one of these data source building, the overall analytical modeling based on the inputs. Early in the study, when we don't have very much within study data for that study we're deploying on, we actually leverage a historical data repository primarily. And then every day the study goes on, we get more confident in the inputs of that particular study. And so it's really a, shall we say, a weighted average over time that's, that's dynamic, that's moving over time. As the study continues to go on, we can leverage the data uh, in the, these analytical models from the study itself. So we're blending the best, if you will, the best of both worlds of studies like this one to bring, to augment the power of our analysis at the outset of the study, especially when this, the riskiest part of the study is the early and mid stage of the study. And then as the study goes on, we can actually index very much study specific to that very unique study, that unique design, et cetera. Well, you took the uh, question right out of my mouth, Ro, which was going to be, hey, I love the idea of protocols like me and comparing to uh, the past, but my study is unique. Um, and it sounds like this blended approach is, um, is, is preempting that concern. Yeah, I, I think so. I mean, it, to be, to be uh, completely forthright, this is something that has come, come up, we've, we've worked on after much iteration. I mean, at the outset of Locum, when we weren't deploying on many studies, we were just saying we had this historical data asset. And really, that, the, the pushback on us was, okay, that's great. And you can do some benchmarking, and we do, and that's valuable. But, you know, over time, my study has a very specific design, has a very specific set of configuration. You need to actually leverage that contextually relevant information to be more predictive or more uh, bring the both descriptive diagnostic and predictive analytics to bear in that in that data itself. And that's so this has evolved over time in, in some senses, you could say, for those who are more st statistically inclined, we've, we've approached this now more from a Bayesian perspective, right? So we're thinking about a prior a set of data from that informs a, a distribution of possibilities, right? And then we're updating that based on new information coming into the study. And I think that really gets to the heart of the point that we can bring some immediate value with historical data and leverage that in sophisticated analysis. For example, detection and prediction of protocol deviations with run rolling, detection prediction of enrollment over time from the site to to the country, to the, to the study, and so on. There's many of these use cases we've deployed. But over time, it's going to be the study, the actual within the study that drives the majority of the information that's going into that model of prediction or going into that analytical model. Marianne, I'm sure you're seeing a, a ton of decentralized trials with various models over at Medible. Um, how are you thinking about um, analytics and quality and uh, some of what Roe resonating? Does that sound uh, maybe complementary to what you're uh, what you're seeing today? Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm going to take a lens on saying that you know at Medible having a platform that allows uh, our organizations to integrate different data sources, as Roe hit uh, articulated so well. I mean, we're we're looking at um, to simplify research by combining uh, collaborations and linking things like um, uh, real world data, EHR data, um, looking at um, uh, labs data, but it does require that um, ability to bridge both traditional data with real world, as well as identifying how, again, the problems that I mentioned earlier, what problems are we looking to solve um, as we, uh, look to acquire longitudinal health data across the spirit system. So 
the way that Metable is solving for this is, is creating collaborations and partnerships, um, creating ways for us to have either pre-built um, connectors such that um, at, at the, at the um, platform level, these integrations could be established. Um, we also recognize um, when we look at how we're defining quality, um, you know, I, I'd be remit not to even indicate some of the, um, um, the uh, net present value when we look at um, the uh, improvements of uh, the impact that we are uh, designing the studies and also looking to uh, integrate data points. And so those examples would be from the protocol. We are looking to all these decisions. We talked about the word chaos. All these decisions is about how we can maybe improve that protocol design recognizing um, key areas of um, the study design and site selection strategies to thereby improve enrollment rates and patients' outcomes. So when we think about um, how we de-risk, let's say, a drug outcome to improve the higher uh, probability and patient adherence, it really requires us thinking about how we're integrating um, some of these data sources to improve insights. Um, what I really loved what uh, Rohit was mentioning is almost like that signal detection to determine risk before it happens. Um, so we know how long, let's say, a patient is staying on a drug. We can leverage telehealth engagements and maybe use the enriched data um, to augment some solutions. So we can uh, proactively um, leverage uh, that data for sites to uh, engage with the patient whether it's a prompt or a reminder for the patient. So all of this is around us leveraging data, right, to improve the accuracy and the quality um, so that we have uh, different ways of serving our patients, whether it's um, creating a compassionate patient care so we can differentiate the use of this data um, when we're, we're observing things like long-term follow-up or effectiveness, or we can improve adherence on long-term um, survival rates. Um, and so th these are ways through collaboration with um, our data partners, our technology partners, some of our service integration partners are also creating these design strategies of identifying, first off, what is your clinical technology stack? How can we improve some of the setup upfront in your trial design? Um, you know, finally, I'll also close with the fact that, you know, in order to have these outcomes well understood, um, it really is around designing the study um, with a, a TA uh, focus so that we can help create the highest level of, of, of data collaboration and also um, looking to determine ways to interpret the data for the new stakeholders and the new generation of these digital and data um, resources that are being um, included in, in clinical study. And so um, if, if there's one, one macro statement I will say here, it's really being able to improve the protocol design upfront um, to include a lot of these uh, interoperability uh, for data standards so that we can create the right outcome and reduce the chaos. And, and there's ways that you do it, right? You, we got these environments and pilots that we can do in sandbox environments, but it's just really exciting that there is more than one way clearly to design your study and to increase the um, level of, of quality um, with uh, quality by design. And there's tons of, of research out there. I mean, Acros created a, a data workflow that we could also leverage. So there's there's some there's some templates that we can encourage the use of it through the network of our partners. And uh, again, it's an exciting time for for collaboration. But I do welcome some questions from the audience because I I would imagine that this is this is not um, new for many folks. There's probably so many different ways, right, of being um, clinical research. So, Craig, it is the bottom of the hour. Do you want to just reset us? And I think we can start by Fran put a great um, comment in the in the chat, which was that the chaos is data clarity for all stakeholders, including you know health providers, PIs, patients, etc. So, and I can think of lots of other chaos things we haven't discussed. But uh, maybe Craig, you want to just reset us in the bottom of the hour, and then we'll invite people to come up. Absolutely. So uh, you have landed in the. Decentralized Trials Club here on Clubhouse, and we gather here every Friday. This is TGIFDCT, where we rotate different topics related to decentralized clinical trials. 
this week. We are fortunate to have uh, Rohit from Locavant, Marianne from Medible, as we talk about some of the trends in decentralized that could be seen as introducing chaos, whether around data sources, approaches, models, and what are our potential solutions for ensuring and monitoring and maintaining quality by leveraging data and analytics. And some of the things we've been talking about here have included these interesting blended approaches of using um, predictive analytics based on past studies that may have uh, may create look-alike opportunities, but how can that be blended with uh, prospective uh, data coming together from various sources, but um, uh, merging, if you will, with some of that historical learning. Uh, now is the time for you. And so uh, we will uh, be welcoming folks onto the stage. Just use that little hand raise icon in the lower right corner on the app. Let's us know that you would like to come on stage. We'll keep you on mute until, uh, until it's your turn in the cycle. And the first person that I'd love to welcome off mute is Fran Ross. Please come on off, introduce yourself and share your perspective or expand on your, uh, on your comment in the chat. Thank you so much, Craig. Uh, Marianne and Rohit, I adore what your companies are doing. It is just glorious to see the movement in clinical trials. Fran Ross have been in the game from site to sponsor to consultant to blah, 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 for more than 30 years. And my focus has been on inspection readiness and the, you know, making sure the data and the records are uh, secured for the sponsor to be able to pass health authority muster. And I think from a chaos perspective, it, it's not something that's necessarily at the table now. And it's so much more helpful to think, you know, your 35, 40, 50 year game on data quality and record quality. As you're getting underway, it's very difficult to secure that barn when all the horses are out. Um, so thanks for the opportunity to chime in. And uh, it's really just great to be on this platform. It's uh, absolutely fabulous to have you here, Fran. Marianne, you were going to add? You know, first of all, thank you for the acknowledgement, Fran. I think, you know, um, collaboration is really the future of innovation, and we get our um, motivation from speaking with sponsors and uh, collaborators and partners where we recognize um, to have a blended um, approach to eliminate the need for manual activities um, that creates efficiencies, whether it's in startup or um, building, um, as Rohit was mentioning, like uh, recognizing some of these um, analytics that are needed to maybe do some signal detection. All this is done so we can um, reduce the burden for sites, improve the overall experience for patients so that we can generate the highest quality of data, leveraging some intelligence. And, um, you know, I will say, you know, at Medable, you know, we're looking to really simplify the patient experience. And doing that requires leveraging real-time data that's collected from so many new sources now than traditional uh, EDC. So ECOA, e television, e-consent, all of this is to improve access earlier and often. Um, for sites is around consolidating that single source of truth in real time. So there's a single data entry and, and an, an overall improvement so that they, they at sites can do what really motivates them, see as many patients as possible, right? In a given in a given unit of time. And then finally for sponsors, we're looking to improve that compliance and data quality by these simple data workflows that we as technologists and data analysts wanna create the best visualization so they can make the right choices. And we have an unprecedented time to show that visibility of data, to have a single source of truth. So, you know, organizations like myself that, you know, look to create the, the highest user patient experience to collect um, the accuracy of that data, to improve engagement um, earlier and often. And then, you know, through collaborations with organizations that are creating, um, you know, sophisticated, uh, intelligent lenses so that we can make, you know, appropriate decisions. So all this is done to con have a connected experience through, you know, leaders like yourself that give us some of that insights so of what are those challenges and, you know, what's next, right? And so uh, we continue to have that relentless, relentless focus to improve the way uh, we're serving our um, clinical community. Thanks so much, Marianne. 
Let's keep this conversation going. We've got some fabulous voices joining us up here on the stage. Jane, would you like to introduce yourself, share your perspective today? Sure thing. Good morning from Northern California, where we are in frame. Uh, my name is Jane Miles, and I work at a DCT tech and services company. So I am thrilled to hear what Marianne and Rohit are talking about. And it brings to mind a program I used to use back in the day at a sponsor company where we were doing um, Bayesian modeling and also other predictive modeling on recruitment timelines, which was a good start. But Rohit, can you tell me more a little bit about how this, this uh, solution you have could help with the daily management of a DCT from a study team? And here's why I'm asking. Well, even this morning in my DTRA sub-team meeting, the objection came up, you're asking me to do more stuff, implement new things. I don't have time to do what I'm doing now. What comes to my mind is how does your tool help manage things like drug resupply or those lab sample kit supplies? Or does it do that yet? This is Jane, and that's my question. Hey, Jane, it's a great question. I think, uh, I mean, from every walk of life in healthcare, people are doing many, many things. And I think the challenge a lot to new entrants on the technology space is, don't give me another point solution that I have to actually integrate into my current workflow, because that just increases the amount of uh, interfaces that I have to work with on a day-to-day -day basis, right? Um, so I think it's a great question. And I think the other aspect to this is rather than specify any one specific use case or point solution, we've taken the approach that we're going to actually take a step back with this clinical trial intelligence platform we have and integrate across the data sources and configure that for particular use cases that a study team is not getting access to. So it's not about, okay, we're just here's our enrollment forecasting solution. You should look at low events enrollment forecasting solution while you're looking at everything else. Now it's about bringing that solution to bear amongst all the other things that impact enrollment, as well as all the other things that, and you named a few of them, for example, um, lab sample tracking. Of course, that impacts enrollment from the perspective of screening. You need to, especially when you, we each, in these niche studies where each patient is that much more is that much more critical to the overall power of the study. You need to make sure what's going on with the samples as it goes to the lab and it's coming back. Are there failures? And if those failures on the lab are due to some sort of protocol deviation on the side of the site, um, for example, uh, you know, one example is fresh FFPE versus versus fresh frozen, for example, on tissue on, on how tissue is preserved, etc. You want that line of sight to the other types of information that'll impact that use case. And so we've taken the step back from saying, okay, we're not going to go there and say we're the best in recruitment here. We're not going to go out there and say we're the best in, 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 in protocol deviations. We have these capabilities across the board, and we can provide that integrative, integrated view of not only the thing, that, the thing that's the, sharp, the, the, the tip of the spear for you in terms of the pain point, but integrating the information that you need to, you need to understand that's impacting that particular use case for you. Did I address the, uh, some of your question or are there pieces that I didn't address that you'd like better clarity on? No, it's really helpful. Maybe you want to come back on the 29th of April, but this is thrilling. This is what will help study teams really adopt the new technologies. If you can make visible to them, what's the next barrier they have to yep. overcome? And Marianne, to your point, first, design with the end in mind. Totally agree. Now I'm thinking about the of conduct. Yeah, study conduct. I mean, if you think about it, right, this whole patient-derived data is, you know, we're providing instantaneously real-time integration and actionable data insights. Now study sites have to look for ways to expedite, um, you know, the data that they have. Uh, so at the conduct level, I think this is really where we're seeking to uh, ensure um, how we're Im improving what that patient compliance is um, at study conduct. Also, like where are ways that we could reduce protocol deviation? 
um, where do we have significant time savings for sites that we've created the interoperability and 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 now um, creating significant engagement. So I think this is really um, because of I would say more advanced, dare I say, maturity of technologies um, that creates data flow. Um, that is a lot of these applications can now have real time data flow. We now have abilities of of using that source data as a single single source of truth, and um, this is where a lot of our service partners are creating different kinds of experiences as study conduct. Um, that's what gets me super excited around the these collaborations where um, many different CROs and SIs are are, are incredibly um, motivated on um, creating more TA therapeutic areas of what those recommendations for, for study conduct is. And, um, you know, I'm already seeing some of our partners are putting their solutions to work uh, where we're seeing the, the benefits of eliminating the need for some of the manual data integrations and some of the significant uh, savings between study startup and building efficiencies. Um, you know, and I will also say that this is creating meaningful improvements in patient care because you're either um, either seeing results of 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 reducing either um, uh, patient visits or having more compliance, um, and then reducing the complexity of of get, gathering that data from multiple sources. Um, and and uh, you know, I would say, Jane, uh, working with someone like yourself uh, and seeing this from the, from the lens of both uh, you know a CRO, a sponsor, you know, technology. I know you're also equally looking to see how can we create value across all those stakeholders in drug development, whether it's the patient sites and sponsors, um, it really what it comes down to is uh, some of that interoperability and the, the ability to shift that paradigm um, when we're looking at traditional ways of doing trial design and study conduct with some of the, the more agile approaches of, of creating uh, more high touch patient engagement experiences. Would you say you're seeing the same trends? Yes, absolutely. And also, um, sometimes it's just getting off the starting block, to be honest. And I'm thinking a little bit back to the conversation in my work stream this morning, like, how do we really show the study teams that these tools will make their lives easier? By the way, I want to do that for sites, too. But if the study teams aren't willing, then the sites will never even get it. Now, uh, Rohit, I also heard Jane drop a plug to make sure you're coming back on April 29th when we're covering uh, lab specimens and workflow there. So there's a nice uh, future state plug. And I'm also going to do another future state plug as I welcome our next speaker uh, or attendee, uh, Shalon Begg, who I just recruited to join us on April 22nd when our topic is on Decentralized Cancer Trials. Shalin, welcome. Please come on off mute, introduce yourself and share your perspective on today's topic. Wonderful, thank you very much. Um, this is this is wonderful, wonderful conversation. So I'm a medical oncologist. I um, am transitioning from being the medical director for the clinical trials office at an NCI designated uh, cancer center. Um, to joining Science 37 as their VP for Oncology. I've been thinking a lot about a lot of the points which um, were discussed by Marianne and Rohit um, in this conversation already. My, my question to you all is when a sponsor, because I've always viewed clinical trials from a sites perspective and, and hearing the operations perspective and everything that's happening in the background that you all have wonderful experience in is something which <clears throat> we're, we're sort of blind to. And um, my question is when a sponsor comes to, to you, Rohit or, or Marianne, and they're like, you know, we want to collect blah, 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 and you realize that it's going to cause friction down the stream and people are going to resist and push back and you have to figure out the interoperability and the applications. How, how much do you try to put their feet to the fire and ask them to convince you that that endpoint is valuable? Or, or do you view that outside of your purview? So I can just take a crack at this from a, uh, a data-driven perspective. Um, we actually 
Sean, thank you for the question, first of all. And second of all, I think that one of the things we just did, we put out a white paper recently on predictive factors for discontinuation. And it's one thing to go and say anecdotally that, you know, you put all these exploratory endpoints or you add all this additional data collection because it's interesting to collect, but that's going to add a lot of patient burden or participant burden, shall we say, depending on the study. Um, and it also, depending on where it's being collected, can add a significant amount of site burden, right? And the more the more impact, the more burden you put on this, the, the more there is risk to, number one, actually capturing the things that are most critical, and number two, the quality of all the data could potentially suffer. Now, what's interesting about what we've done with this discontinuation thing uh, analysis is we've been able to say that um, looking at a particular anonymized sponsors that were had quite a few more exploratory endpoints, we could see higher than normal discontinuation rates in that patient and the participant and patient populations as compared to other sponsors for very similar contextually relevant uh, times and studies. So it's one thing to provide that anecdotally and say, from our experience, this is not a great idea, X, Y, and Z. It's another thing to go and say like, this is what the data has indicated for studies in this therapeutic area, uh, in several studies like this one, and this is what we've seen. Do you want to, you know, and then it's, it really provides the, the decision makers, so to speak, with the information at their fingertips to make certain trade-offs. And you know, nobody wants high discontinuation rates in their studies. Um, that's, a, that's a real challenge for a number of reasons. Um, and I think once you actually have that informed discussion I think the the sponsors oftentimes are can approach this from an informed perspective and decide what is absolutely critical and what is really should be exploratory and what we can live without. This topic around endpoints and what's available to us is always a great one, Shalon, right? I mean, we, we see these uh, continuing trends of additional complexity across clinical trials as more and more endpoints continue to be layered in. Um, people sometimes continue to experiment or dabble by just adding more. And sometimes it's adding additional burden and cost into studies, while at the same time, we know we have to modernize these endpoints. We were, uh, I, I know we have a few sessions coming up around digital endpoints and talked recently about the digital health technology draft guidance from the FDA. But Shalin, are you seeing in oncology, do you sense that there are untapped opportunities to modernize our measurements and endpoints in that area? I think hats off to the FDA, right, for um, for, for throwing in the flag, for, for challenging sponsors and investigators, for coming up with novel questions to answer. The... The problem in the oncology space, specifically for um, there are a lot of drug approvals that happen at phase two clinical trials now, as well as phase three, um, is the approvals historically, the drug approvals historically have been survival centric. So you need to show an overall survival improvement in order to get your drug approved. What that's done is it's incentivized sponsors to focus on that um, on that measure. And only now am I starting to see some sponsors start to value the data that we can collect from wearable devices and from passively patient-generated data and EHR data, and to start looking at that as valuable secondary endpoints. But they still understand that those are cute and nice to have, but they're not going to... Um, um, hinge the, the sort of the, the, the success of their, their entire trial on, on, on those endpoints. I hope that that changes because we know that there are a lot of treatments, especially in oncology, where the treatments can have a lot of side effects, where you may see them move their overall survival needle, but the patients were miserable because they were in bed all day long. And, and, and these endpoints that we are talking about and, and the work that we can do to gain gain insights on their um, on their quality of life and their 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 patient reported outcomes is is very impressive and um you know a lot of the work that folks on this call have done are 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 forming the foundation for us to make that case to sponsors in oncology 
but I'll tell you, it's um, it's it's not a high priority for a lot of sponsors, and I hope that it's going to change. Um, and the FDA guidance is is helpful for that because it gives them a framework to start thinking about endpoints other than overall survival or or tumor shrinkage rates that or like overall response rates. That's encouraging to hear. Um, I would I would uh, add, you know, clearly trial data though rich is a very narrow data set represents a sliver of an entire patient's health profile, right? From a highly controlled environment. And, you know, when we think about connecting um, other sources of data um, to add the depth and breadth of, and the dimensionality to trials, um, like we're linking electronic health records or labs, you know, um, at Medable, we have our patient advisory council, and um, we get information and insights in terms of how patients want to be engaged in a clinical study. And, and there's an expectation that you're going to create a level of convenience and you're going to um, um, create that level of convenience to, to in integrate the, the use of that data. Um, and we know that we need, you know, at least three things as an outcome, but where we're helping explain adverse events or this information can help serve as either a, a surrogate endpoint for effectiveness or support subpopulation analysis that explains why the different responses. And hopefully we're doing this where we've created technology and digital as a enabler to create a diverse patient population. So the representation are of these um, therapies um, are across pa patients like um, that represent a total a greater population of diversity. And so even linking mortality data can add a breath to the trial um, so that we can extend observational survival rates, you know, from, from months to years. And so we're, we're, we know that there's lots of potential and I couldn't agree more with you that that sense of urgency um, yeah, can clearly create benefits um, to a multitude of, of patients leveraging, again, sources of data, uh, creating that data strategy and recognizes the myriad of solutions this creates for many of us. Amir, we've got about five minutes left for today's session. I think we should double down in oncology for these last few minutes. Let's turn to our friend Archana. Welcome. Hi, good morning. Um, thank you for uh inviting me to the stage and so nice to see my colleague Marianne here um, uh, hosting today's uh, program as well. Uh, I just wanted to, my name is Urch Nasa and I head up uh, Oncology Solutions at Medable. Um, I wanted to uh, underscore the point that Charlotte made earlier, uh, especially with respect to safety and tolerability. And I want to share a quote from Dr. Pazdor that I just heard while I was attending um, a session where he was speaking on the topic of safety and tolerability in oncology. Um, oftentimes, you know, in the culture of oncology, quality of life has taken a secondary endpoint, was literally his quote. And, and he emphasized and underlined that this needs to change with the kind of drugs we have now. Um, you know, meaning that overall survival can no longer be the primary endpoint that all sponsors latch to. Safety and tolerability, the quality of life of the patient is equally, if not far more important that the FDA is gonna look at when they are looking at the overall package for approval. So I just wanted to underscore that point that leveraging these technologies, looking at longitudinal data, de-risking some of your uh, um, well, first of all, all the way starting from identifying the right endpoints um, that are valuable to the regulatory authorities. Um, sponsors, you know, I urge the sponsors and other stakeholders on this call to pay heed to that, that that's where the regulatory authorities are also going to focus on. And so I just wanted to build on that point. So this is Amir, I know we're running out of time. What I would say is uh, to that point, I think it's fantastic that the FDA and the oncology division is taking leadership there. I would encourage all of us, I mean, clearly the FDA has probably the most impact on how sponsors think and behave, but I think all of us, whether investigators, whether service companies or other types of thought leaders, the more we can make everyone do the right thing, right, behave in the right way is certainly a way to do it. So I think all of us have a responsibility to do that. And I'm really glad to see in the oncology area, the FDA is certainly showing leadership there. Craig, any final thoughts around that? No, I, I think uh, this um, 
I think it's really interesting the direction the conversation took, because in thinking about chaos in our trials, and, and by chaos, again, this diversity of data sources, this diversity of, of approaches that we're seeing in these studies, and how to manage our quality across this, I think this lean around measurement and endpoints, um, whether in oncology or in other therapeutics, is, is such a very natural progression for the conversation to take. Uh, Rohit, I don't know if you were expecting to go that direction in terms of innovative measurements, but I think it's interesting where we kind of landed this conversation. No, I think it's great. I think it's an evolution, uh, an informed evolution from all the stakeholders here together. And I think there's a, there's a lot being done right now to move the industry forward along addressing potential areas of chaos, but there's a lot more to be done, obviously. And I'm looking forward to all of us continuing to move that forward and collaborate together to make that a reality. Rohit and Marianne, thank you so much for, uh, for sparking this conversation today around quality and some innovative strategies that can help us to better manage quality in these studies. Fran, Jane, Shalan, Archana, thank you so much for contributing to today's conversation, making it fabulous. We have a great lineup of topics coming up in the weeks ahead. Keep your ideas coming to Amir and I, and we're going to try and keep these sessions going. Follow the Decentralized Trials Club for updates and for those replays of past gatherings. And as Amir always reminds me, follow the folks you see here in the room, not just the speakers, but scroll on down because these are the people that share your interest in today's topic. Uh, Amir, any other closing thoughts? Sorry, let me get off mute. No, I just want to thank everyone who uh, participated today and wish everyone a great weekend. Perfect ending. Enjoy your weekend, all. Thanks again.